the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Sam Maupin Engineering. Today we're going to talk with Sarah Barrett. She's the author of Stand Up, Stand Strong, A Call to Bold Faith in a Confused Culture. She writes to young people in her generation. She's just out of her teenage years, but writes boldly and effectively on the subject to her fellow, to her peers, I should say. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. And we'll also uh, take a look at some of the headline news, uh, war headlines and so on in the second hour of today's program. Well, House Republicans and Democrats interrupted and talked over a group of energy executives in a pretty testy hearing today over who's to blame for high gas prices. House Energy and Commerce Oversight and Investigations Subcommittee Chair Diana DeGette, she's a Democrat from Colorado, started the questioning off Uh, quizzing the executives on why they think gas prices are high. She insisted that the executives give yes or no answers on whether the reason prices are high is because of low supply and interrupted them when they insisted the answer is more complex. Madam Chair, fuel prices are impacted by a number of factors, Chevron Corporation CEO Michael Wirth said. So you don't agree that crude oil prices are high because there's less supply? The uh, congresswoman said, interrupting Worth. Worth said crude oil prices are high because of worries about potential future supply disruptions. He inter- uh, Deget interrupted him again. OK, I'm sorry, I don't have time. So answers there weren't suffi- there wasn't time for answers Deget continued the confrontational exchange with the executives, including asking BP American chairman David Lawler about a lack of correlation between crude oil prices and gas prices. Lawler explained that a complex set of factors impacts the price of gas, including supply risk, uh, which affects all refined energy products. Well, ranking member H. Morgan Griffith, the Republican out of uh, Virginia, also interrupted the executives in some confrontational questions. He said they were being too cautious in their answers about whether the whether rhetoric from the Biden administration is reducing their investment in energy production. So apparently everybody wants to get in the weeds and hide behind their words. Griffin said, well, the president says he wants to make sure that we do not lower the cost of production. Is that going to make you you produce more or less, Mr. Woods, more or less? I think the government has a role in encouraging investment and creating a positive investment climate. The ExxonMobil Corporation CEO Darren Woods responded. And when we create a negative climate, you produce less. Isn't that true? Yes or no? Griffith shot back. There tends to be a chilling effect with negative words, Woods went on to say. Well, Griffith also grilled Worth, asking if he would weigh in on this and give him, give me a real answer. Worth responded that mixed messages do not encourage investment. Griffith responded that Biden isn't sending mixed messages, but instead a clearly anti-fossil fuel message. Energy and Commerce Committee Chairman Frank Pallone, a Democrat from New Jersey, then asked the executives if they would commit to increasing production, reducing dividends to investors and halting stock buybacks. 
We are increasing productions, Wood said. Well, I need a yes or no, Pallone responded. We will increase our production. Yes, Woods responded. But that means you're not going to reduce dividends and buybacks, Pallone said. Well, that's unfortunate because we need you to do that as well. Well, each of the other executives said they would increase production but wouldn't commit to Pallone's buyback and dividend demands. The executives who testified remotely at the hearing are Lawler, Worth, Woods, Devon Energy CEO Richard uh, Moncrief, Pioneer Natural Resources CEO Scott Sheffield, and Shell USA President Gretchen Watkins. It came at a time when Americans are paying near record gas prices, partially as a result of the Russian war on Ukraine, which is royal to global energy markets. Average nationwide gas prices as of Tuesday were $4.64 per gallon, just below the record of $4.30 on um, March the 11th, according to AAA. Well, House Democrats must have uh, political amnesia, so says the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal, or hope Americans do. On Wednesday, they're holding another political struggle session to lash oil and gas CEOs for surging gasoline prices. But only last autumn, they were demanding that these same companies produce less oil to reduce the global supply of crude. Well, during the October 28th hearing, California Representative Ro Khanna praised BP and Shell CEOs for pledging to reduce their oil production. Then he asked U.S. oil execs why they weren't doing the same. Are you embarrassed as an American company that your production is going up while the European counterparts are going down? He asked Chevron CEO Michael Worth. Mr. Worth tried to explain that new supply was needed to meet rising global demand, but the Silicon Valley congressman persisted. It's not a gotcha question. Do you commit to do anything to matching your European counterparts to try to bring the actual demand of oil production down? Mr. Worth replied, with all due respect, I'm very proud of our company and what we do. He should be. The U.S. oil and gas industry supports hundreds of thousands of jobs and produces far fewer methane emissions than Russia, for example. Until recently, the U.S. was the world's swing oil producer, helping keep crude prices down. Not everyone can afford a Tesla. Mr. Khanna's next uh, flogged ExxonMobil CEO, Darren Woods, would you commit to matching our European counterparts to reducing the production of oil? Mr. Woods answered at the time, gamely, we're committed to lowering our emissions. Mr. Khanna wasn't satisfied. No. Are you committed to lowering the production as the Paris Accords say or no? Is it yes or no? Well, if progressives truly cared about the climate, they'd support more U.S. oil and gas production, which could replace supply from countries with lower environmental standards and higher emissions. More U.S. natural gas exports would also reduce global consumption of coal, which is much more carbon intense. But uh, the main goal nowadays is reducing U.S. oil and gas production, which all other things being equal means less supply and higher energy prices. That seems to have flipped most recently. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show coming up uh, in just a segment or two. We'll have a conversation with Sarah Barrett. She's the author of Standing Up, Standing Strong. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, Sarah Barrett. The author of Stand Up, Stand Strong, A Call to Bold Faith in a Confused Culture. 
While returning to the news, a group of House Democrats have banded together to raise various levels of alarm about the Biden administration's ongoing efforts to revive a nuclear deal with Iran, saying the terms of the reported deal are deeply troubling. Led by Democratic Representatives Josh Gottmeyer of New Jersey and Elaine Luria of Virginia, the group of 18 Democrats say the U.S. should not enter into a bad deal with Iran that allows its terrorist activities to go unchecked and fails to prevent Iran from ever obtaining a nuclear weapon. We understand that while the recent negotiations have not concluded, we feel that we can't stay quiet about the unacceptable and deeply troubling turn that these talks have reportedly taken. This was from Luria, who is... uh, speaking at a news conference with fellow Democrats earlier today. Negotiations have been ongoing in Vienna for the U.S. to rejoin the international deal that President Trump pulled out of in 2018. Britain, France, Germany, Russia and China are still part of the deal with Iran, and they've been trying to salvage it. There have been reports for the last month that negotiators are close to an agreement, which has created a sense of urgency among Democrats to speak out. One major concern for the lawmakers is the prospect that the U.S. could agree to Iran's demands that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps would no longer be designated as a foreign terrorist organization. Another concern is about Russia's reported role in brokering and enforcing the potential deal. Are we seriously going to let a war criminal, Vladimir Putin, be the guarantor of this deal, Gottmeier said. Well, the message Democrats want to send to the administration is we need a longer and stronger deal, not the one that is shorter and weaker. It's um, it's uh, needs to stand strong against terrorists, protect American values and our allies. Representative Juan Vargas, a Democrat from California, said the administration has kept Congress in the dark. And the way the secret talks have gone reminds him of the original 2015 deal. It's a little bit like last time they keep us in the dark. Then it turns out there are some fatal flaws. It was a bad deal then and it's a bad deal now. And again, these are Democrats raising questions. Well, the 18 members that banded together Wednesday have various degrees of apprehension about the deal, ranging from concern to outright opposition, Luria, the, one of the members, reports. Heritage Foundation's President Kevin Roberts uh, released a statement on the uh, push to secure another nuclear appeasement deal with Iran, saying the original Iran deal was seriously flawed and returning to it will not stop Tehran from acquiring nuclear weapons to threaten the U.S. and its allies. Unfortunately, the administration is doing the exact opposite by attempting to recommit the U.S. to this deeply flawed, entirely unworkable deal for which President Trump wisely withdrew the U.S. in 2018. Despite its apologists' cries to the contrary, the deal gave Iran billions of dollars in cash and sanctions reliefs which it used to advance its nuclear program and fund terrorism throughout the Middle East, as even John Kerry admitted would happen. It did nothing to limit Iran's ballistic missile program. It did not require any time anywhere inspections of Iranian nuclear facilities. It put Iran in the driver's seat in choosing what inspections would be allowed and when, as well as where. The president's push to restore this horrific deal is all the more baffling in the wake of Saturday's Iranian missile attack on U.S. personnel in Iraq. The U.S. should punish this evil regime for its attack on American citizens and continued threat to our interests. We must never allow Iran to obtain nuclear weapons. And that's precisely what we are apparently prepared to do. Well, in other news, Janet Yellen is warning of enormous, this is the word she used, enormous economic repercussions from the Ukraine invasion. 
Representative David Kustoff, a Republican from Tennessee, called out the Treasury Secretary for supporting big spending and creating tremendous inflationary pressures. But the Treasury Secretary today warned of major consequences for the global economy as a result of the Russian-Ukraine war, including severe disruptions to the global flow of food and energy. Russia's actions represent an unacceptable affront to the rules-based global order and will have enormous economic repercussions in Ukraine and beyond. She said in prepared remarks during her annual testimony before the House Financial Services Committee. Well, their comments come as the U.S., European Union and Group of Seven coordinated new sanctions on Russia, including a U.S. ban on new investments in the country and fresh penalties targeting top Russian security officials and President Vladimir Putin's adult daughters in response to um, reported Russian atrocities in the Ukrainian town of Bucha. Western allies have already cut off a key part of the central bank of Russia by preventing it from selling dollars, euros or other foreign currencies in its roughly six hundred and thirty billion dollar reserve stockpile. Blocked certain financial institutions from the swift messaging system for international payments and sanctioned some of the Russian elites who have close ties to Putin. The U.S. also ordered a ban on Russian oil imports, something that Yellen acknowledged will push energy prices even higher. On another rather disturbing story, after a Texas federal judge ordered the Food and Drug Administration to accelerate the release of the data it created and relied on to license the Pfizer BioNTech COVID-19 two-dose injection, the latest documents reveal that the drug company hired about 600 additional full-time employees with plans to hire an additional 1,800 more by June of 2021 to process the, and I'm quoting, large number of adverse events they saw as early as February of 2021. Well, the rollout of the Pfizer injection led to an unprecedented number of reported adverse events, yet neither the drug company nor the FDA disclosed this critical information to the public. The information was contained in a a more than 11,000-page document cache released to the 1st of April of this year by the FDA as part of a court-ordered disclosure schedule stemming from an expedited Freedom of Information Act request. The document, Cumulative Analysis of Post-Authorization Adverse Event Reports, as it's titled, of the Pfizer BioNTech injection, highlights adverse events identified through February 28th of last year. The document was previously released in November of 2021, but the number of employees Pfizer hired and planned to hire was redacted. According to the unredacted document released the first of this month, Pfizer has also taken a multiple action to help alleviate the large increase in adverse event reports. Now, this includes significant uh, technology enhancements and processes that and workflow solutions, as well as increasing the number of data entry and case processing uh, colleagues. To date, Pfizer has uh, onboarded approximately 600 additional full time employees. More are joining each month with an expected total of more than 1800 additional resources by the end of June 2021. Well, the unredacted version also reveals that approximately 126,212,580 doses of uh, BioNTech's, uh, the Pfizer EUA vaccine, were shipped worldwide from the receipt of the first temporary authorization for emergency supply on uh, the 1st of December 2020 through the 28th of February 2021. Well, a crash of two Army helicopters that killed a soldier at Fort Stewart last month was an accident 
or I should say, was not an accident and is under criminal investigation, according to authorities. Exposing a criminal history, Hannah Tubbs, the trans child molester, sentenced to a juvenile facility for the assault of a 10-year-old, was accused of attacking a 4-year-old girl one year earlier. No action was taken. Calling controls unresponsive, pilots successfully landed their New York to Paris flight after a technical failure forced a crew to take emergency action. And fasting from whiteness, a church near Chicago has told parishioners it will abstain from performing any music associated with white people during the season of Lent. Now, is this a reflection of the body of Christ as it's described in Scripture? No. Representative Ro Khanna said he's concerned student loan debt could prevent Americans from starting families or buying homes. The president has extended that a period where repayment must begin. Laura Ingram suggested that former President Obama was called to the White House to resuscitate the Biden administration's image. In 2017, President Biden wrote a college recommendation letter for the son of a Chinese executive who did business with his son, Hunter. Ethical conflict? Some are questioning. Newsweek's Bata Ungar Sargan says President Biden's media allies are turning on him after he failed to detract attention away from the truth that America's real divide is about class. And in an effort toward gender erasure, more media outlets employ the term pregnant people. Now, is that plural or is that singular? Is it male, female? Anyway, the term pregnant people in reporting when referring to pregnant women matching the Biden administration's new language. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Sarah Barrett. She is the author of Stand Up, Stand Strong, A Call to Bold Faith in a Confused Culture. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest says that good and evil, right and wrong, God's way and the world's way are engaged in a fierce fight. All it takes is opening a social media app to catch a glimpse of the competing ideas and the volatile messages about sexuality, about identity and marriage. Well, this generation is surrounded by opinions about politics, religion, freedom and uh, gender. And the pressure to conform to societal demands only continues to increase. How can we sort through the noise and gain clarity in a culture riddled with confusion? Well, with powerful examples from scripture and stories from culture changers today and through the centuries, the book Stand Up, Stand Strong, A Call to Bold Faith in a Confused Culture, written by my guest Sarah Barrett, equips readers to live with a biblical worldview, approach today's hot button issues with wisdom and influence their generation for the glory of God. She tackles tough topics like sexuality, addiction, identity, media, and much, much more. Well, my guest is Sarah Barrett. She is editor in chief of the revolution.com, a growing online platform that reaches more than half a million Christian teens, parents, and youth workers every year. She's a frequent speaker on topics including using your teen years for Christ, engaging culture with a biblical worldview, and godly dating and relationships. She's also been a guest on numerous radio shows and podcasts, including the Eric Metaxas Show and is the host of the podcast Do Hard Things with the Revolution 
Uh, she has written for the Gospel Coalition, Desiring God, Girl Defined, and Crosswalk.com. Uh, Sarah lives in Michigan with her family, but we're delighted to have her with us here today by phone. Sarah Barrett, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much, Georgine. I'm so glad to be here with you. Well, I have to tell you, I'm thrilled to read a book written by a young woman to her generation and those who are coming after her in such a skillful way. So first, I want to commend you for the book and taking this on in a way that I think is going to make a difference to uh, to your readers and to this generation. So kudos. Oh, thank you so much. That means so much to me. It's really my heart to connect with my peers because I'm going through the same things they are, and I just want to encourage them in their own walk with God. In writing about standing strong in a crazy upside-down world, you say, if it's, um, if it's hard being a teen, try navigating life as a Christian teen. But God created us for this cultural moment and placed us in this time in history for a purpose. It's our responsibility to live well in the days we've been given. The challenges of our current moment do not alter our God-given purpose. And that is such a profound and wise statement to make to a generation that's facing challenges that previous generations probably could not have imagined uh, were coming. Yes, but truly, if you if you really think about it, our purpose and mission as Christians has never changed. That's right. The challenges of the moment have changed, but our mission is the same, and that's to glorify God and proclaim the gospel. Now, one of the first things you do in the book is establish what a worldview is, and I think that's an important starting place because it's it represents the collected um, understanding of the world we live in. Talk a little bit about how you define and explain a worldview to your readers. Yeah, so understanding worldview is so important because so many of us aren't even aware that we have a worldview, but a worldview is really a pattern of ideas that shapes the way we view and live in the world. It's like this system of ideas, and it shapes how we answer all of these big questions of life, like who is God? God? What is the purpose of life? Uh, Who am I? Why am I here? What determines right and wrong? Um, So I like to think of a worldview almost like a filter on Instagram to kind of connect with my Gen Z audience. You know, you put a filter on a picture and it changes how you view that picture. It it mutes some colors, it adds definition. It doesn't change the picture, but it changes the way you look at it just a little bit. And that is the same way with your worldview. It uh, affects how you look at the world and how you answer those big questions of life. You also write about um, post-truth thinking, and perhaps your picture analogy is one example of that. But can you go a little bit deeper uh, into what post-truth thinking is and what areas we're we're witnessing it at this stage in history and in our culture? Yeah, so a fun fact about post-truth. In 2016, the Oxford Dictionary named post-truth as their word of the year. And that was really just an exclamation point on mindsets Mm -hmm. that were already deeply set in the foundations of society. So a post-truth environment exists when people are directed by subjective feelings rather than objective facts. So a post-truth world is not a world in which truth has ceased to exist but one where truth has ceased to matter. So you think of phrases like, well, what's true for you doesn't have to be true for me, and live your truth. These are examples of post-truth thinking and post-truth mindsets. And we see this happen in the world around us. That's obviously the first place where you see post-truth thinking happen. Um, 
you can see this very clearly in issues of gender and sexuality, that um, our gender or sexuality is determined by our emotions uh, instead of our necessarily our biology. Uh, we can also see this show up sometimes in the church when we compromise on God's Word to try to fit our own preferences or when we try to make Scripture politically correct, um, when the Bible is kind of distorted to, to fit the ideas and the perspectives of the world. Um, and mainly we have to be aware that post-truth can show up in ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, when we ignore the truth because it makes us uncomfortable or when we discard truth just because uh, it doesn't fit the, the idea that we, want, uh, that we want to be true. So really, uh, we always have to come back to the fact that there is objective truth, and that objective truth is first and foremost defined by the very Word of God. Now, you write to a younger generation. Do you find interest in this younger generation staying strong in a post-truth world and understanding how to go about it. I mean, that's really what your book is about. But how receptive is the generation or generations to whom you write and the people who care about them? How receptive are they to the notion um, that you can stay strong in a post-truth world, embracing the notion of, of objective truth? So I find so many, uh, so many teens today have a lot of questions they're truly desperate for answers. They're searching for answers. Oftentimes, those answers aren't comfortable. They're not what they want to hear. But this generation is so receptive to going on a search for truth. And as they genuinely do seek out truth, I find that they are very receptive to the idea that there is objective truth and the Word of God, truly because everything in society is so confusing and so subjective. It's always going back to the way that we feel, the way that we think about something, and that doesn't provide any actual clarity or direction. So when we find that firm rooting of truth, that can be both a freeing and relieving thing to understand that we are not the source of truth, that there is a higher standard of truth in our emotions. Mm. You write that the ingredients of every culture are decisions, mindsets, and beliefs that overflow into actions, laws, and inventions. This is the backdrop in which young people today are attempting to understand the world around them, and some, particularly followers of Christ, are seeking truth. Um, again, I think sometimes the older generations underestimate the interest of younger generations in pursuing what is truth. Oh, absolutely. I absolutely agree. That definition of truth is so diluted in our society. And it really, uh, as we perceive the culture, it comes down to what are those ingredients? What are those ideas that we have in the world around us? Um, because ideas are the foundation of our worldview. Our ideas about truth define how we live out truth. Uh, so we really have to go back to what is truth and what ideas are, are in the culture around us that we really need to, to understand how those ideas affect how we live in the world around us. We're talking with Sarah Barrett. She is the author of Stand Up, Stand Strong, A Call to Bold Faith in a Confused Culture. She is a young author with a great deal of depth and uh, maturity. And we're uh, going to continue our conversation in just a few moments. So do stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Sarah Barrett. She is uh, editor-in-chief of TheRevolution.com. It's a growing online platform. They reach more than a half a million Christian teens, their parents, and youth workers every year. Most recently, she is the author of Stand Up, Stand Strong, A Call to Bold Faith in a Confused Culture. In the uh, first segment of uh, the program, we talked about the first part of the book, Rethinking Normal, but there are two other segments as well, uh, Tackling the Nitty Gritty, in which she takes on some of the more uh, sobering issues and generation change, preparing for pushback, taking your worldview into the world and culture changers then and now, helping to prepare young people not only to think biblically and to have a biblical worldview, but to anticipate what's to come when that uh, worldview um, guides their decisions, their conversations and, and so on. We live in a culture in which we're told to be ourselves, although what what we actually are doesn't really matter. It's what we declare ourselves to be matters. How important is that to the generation of young people who want to follow Christ and reflect his worldview? Is that one of the major challenges, being oneself, when, in fact, we are conformed to the image of, of Christ and following him? Yes, identity is such a pivotal a question and struggle that teens have today, um, because identity is such an integral part of our worldview. Really, how we view identity and how we view ourselves guides our thoughts and our actions, our ideas about right and wrong. Um, so much of what, so many of the issues that we see in our society go back to this foundation of identity. On um, these questions of what does it mean to be human? Who are we? Uh, who has the power to define us, and do we matter? And this is truly such a, a, a an issue that gets down to the core of of our hearts and our passions, our struggles, because we are all searching for truth about our identity. We're constantly trying to answer these questions: that Am I loved? Am I significant? Do I have purpose? And so our culture tells us to find answers to those questions in their identity mantra, just to be ourselves, to be our authentic selves, to embrace uh, all the thoughts and opinions and mindsets of our own hearts. But truly, um, we do need to go back to that identity that we are the Imago Dei, that we are made in the image of God. And that no other, you know, no other creation on earth can boast that privilege of being formed in the very likeness of our Creator. Um, that our purpose and the reason for our existence is really to glorify God and to exalt God. That the stamp of God upon our lives is really as intrinsic as you could say the breath inside of our lungs. So having that right understanding of identity of who. We are in, in God that we are the Omega Dei uh, can really under can really shape our worldview and how we view the world, how we view other people, and how we view all these other questions of identity. Another major challenge for young people today in this hypersexualized society is how young adults can live out God's design for sex when every message that the culture sends is contrary to what the Scripture teaches and says is in our best interest. Yes, truly. Just look around and you see that we are a society that's literally obsessed with sex and sexuality. Um, You know, I've heard that about 57%, I believe, is the statistic that uh, teens seek out porn on a regular basis, like every month. 
uh, so many teens view uh, viewing pornography as less uh, immoral than like not recycling. We just have such a a mixed up perspective of our sexuality and you just hit on the most important topic that uh, everything in our culture it, it is proclaiming this twisted message of of sexuality that is truly a dead-end road of heartbreak um, that pornography usage it leads to so much dissatisfaction and body image issues and changes the way that we view people and how we view ourselves and how we view uh, sexuality and then just such a hookup culture that, you know, sex is available on an app and it's just talked about everywhere in our culture. But we need to understand the greater picture, God's picture, that he has designed sex for greater intimacy, not less, that he has a plan and a purpose for our sexuality, that it's not just this list of do's and don'ts. It's really him revealing a bigger and more beautiful picture. Ephesians 5 talks about how marriage and relationships is to be a picture of Christ and the church. And really, if we understand that bigger picture, that bigger view for our relationships and our sexuality, it can completely change how we view it. And so I, I still believe that the church needs to be engaging with these conversations with, with teens, answering their hard questions, mm-hmm. And just helping them to understand this this bigger picture that God has in mind. One of the implications of a hypersexualized society is the subject of abortion, and that again is a hot button subject. But is the outgrowth of the the kind of um, conduct that young people, and for that matter, all of society, suggests is perfectly acceptable. Um, you write about um, abortion and the pro life arguments against it in your book. How important is this to young people as they're navigating a culture that suggests that, you know, the consequence of your uh, actions, you don't really have to bear? Oh, the, the question of abortion is one that's so close to my heart. And I, one, I believe uh, God is really moving and working in teens' hearts uh, today. Um, I think of, like, to, to open with a story here, I think of a situation in, in 2021, a Texas high school valedictorian, uh, her speech went viral when she explained how she needs access to abortion to fulfill her dreams. Uh, limiting abortion was, in her words, dehumanizing, to have the autonomy from your own body taken away from you. Um, but her point really overtly ignores that there is something so much more dehumanizing than just removing one's autonomy, and that is killing another human being, which is what abortion is. And so I believe that as, as we are engaging in these conversations on life and understanding uh, who the unborn are, you know, are the unborn human? Um, the concept of abortion completely hinges on the dehumanization of the unborn um, you know, saying that a fetus is simply pregnancy tissue or that an embryo is just a clump of cells. As we really dig into the, the core of this abortion question of who are the unborn, are the unborn human, um, as, we, as we understand that more, I feel like God is really opening up so many teens' eyes that the unborn are human and that God is moving and working uh, in changing this. Really, the battle of abortion is not a political battle. It's one in hearts and in minds. And I just see God working so strongly in that yeah. area. I'm very encouraged in that, that area. I think this is a pro-life generation, and I'm encouraged yeah. to see individuals rising up to speak 
uh, the truth and love on that subject. Our time is short, but your book covers all of the issues that young people are, are facing, the major issues. In it, you also tackle some very controversial topics like injustice, racism, critical race theory. Um, is it important for young people to think through all of these issues, and are there implications to their faith and their worldview? Oh, the topic of justice is so important because justice is not God's suggestion to the church. It is truly God's command to the church. Uh, We live in a world that's filled with injustice, but our God is a God of justice. So these topics of prejudice and discrimination and racism and our response to these topics, it matters so greatly because every person on the face of the globe bears the fingerprint of God like we were just talking about, a God who is not simply for justice, but himself is the very standard and character of justice. So as we understand that, it truly does change how we view um, our role in reaching out to the needy and the oppressed and living out our faith actively, not just passively, but actively. Well, once again, the title of the book we've been talking about, Stand Up, Stand Strong, A Call to Bold Faith in a Confused Culture. You do an excellent job of addressing these issues and addressing young people as a young person. Again, I commend you for the book and would recommend it to our listeners as well. The book is published by Baker Books, and I thank you, uh, Sarah, for joining us here today. Oh, thank you, Georgine. It's been my, my pleasure. Thank you so much. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. We've got news and traffic right here at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing, Sam Maupin engineering. We're going to continue to wind our way through the news. We'll also take a look at the Little Church Big Faith Survey published in Christianity Today, telling us what the church looks like, the majority of which is the smaller version, and the challenges that came out of the pandemic. But first, some headline news. Elaine Chow points out that despite many challenges and uncertainty that loomed on the horizon, the Ukrainian people have been proud, determined, and energized to once again be independent and in control of their own country. I'll point out at a great great cost. Wesley Hunt warns that the repeal of Title 42 will be catastrophic. It will flood the immigration system. It will increase fentanyl deaths and human trafficking will surge. Lieutenant Colonel Robert McGinnis, retired, suggests President Joe Biden must tell the American people what national interests are at stake in Ukraine to justify our investment. I think people are moved by what they're seeing, But explaining the connection might be helpful, the retired lieutenant colonel says. In other news, Elon Musk may have picked another SEC battle over how to disclose his investment in Twitter. The California legislature has moved forward with a bill to expand the killing of babies past the moment of birth. From that story, published in the California Globe, Assembly Bill 2223 by Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks, A Democrat from Oakland misleadingly labeled reproductive health actually legalizes infanticide in an abortion bill to expand the killing of babies past the moment of birth up to weeks after. According to opponents of the bill, Wick said while other states were adopting increasingly aggressive measures to limit abortions, California continues to protect reproductive rights. Sort of an innocuous term. Wick said the bill only applies to pregnant women 
uh, who should not be prosecuted for losing or miscarrying a baby, which has not been a prosecutable offense at this point, or for a tragic situation during pregnancy. In other words, you decide you don't want the child. Section 7A of the bill states, notwithstanding any other law, the person shall not be subject to civil or criminal liability or penalty or otherwise deprived of their rights based on their actions or omissions with respect to their pregnancy or actual potential or alleged pregnancy outcome, including miscarriage, stillbirth or abortion or pre a perinatal death. The California Family Council said this bill specifically protects a mother from civil and criminal charges for any actions or omissions to her pregnancy, including miscarriages, stillborn, abortion and perinatal death. The definition of perinatal death varies, although all include the death of a baby from 22 weeks gestation to seven days post birth or more. However, attorney and president of the National Center for Law and Policy, Dean Broyles, discusses some. Depending on how the term perinatal is interpreted by the courts, this bill legalizes the infanticide of children several weeks after their birth and possibly as late as their first birthday. World leaders are urging the U.N. to boot Russia from their first birthday. That This is where we're heading as a culture. World leaders are urging U.N., to boot Russia from the Human Rights and Security Councils. From the story in National Review, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., told reporters in Romania today that she would press for Russia's suspension from the global human rights body over the massacre. Bayana um, Goldogranga, or something very like that, uh, from Romania, responded uh, to the horrific image of uh, out of Bucha, In close coordination with Ukraine, European countries and other partners at the U.N., we are going to seek Russia's suspension from the U.N. Human Rights Council. Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, spoke directly to the U.N. Security Council on Tuesday morning. From that story, the Ukrainian president told the U.N. Security Council that Russia should be removed from the council or it should otherwise be dissolved after warning that newly uncovered atrocities following the withdrawal of Russian forces near Kiev could be worse than those in the city of Bucha. And from the Business Insider, Russia is one of five permanent members of the UNSC, joined by four other victors in World War II, the U.S., the U.K., China, and France. All of the permanent members have veto power. Yes, Russia is expected to veto the effort. As mentioned a moment ago, excuse me, Elon Musk has been appointed to Twitter's board of directors. Looking forward to working with Parag and Twitter board to make significant improvements to Twitter in the coming months, he tweeted. Seth Dillon, CEO of Babylon Bee, says Musk reached out to us before he polled his followers about Twitter's commitment to free speech. He wanted to confirm that we had, in fact, been suspended. He even mused on that on that call that he might need to buy Twitter. Now he's the largest shareholder and has a seat on the board. And Reuters reports that Musk's appointment, however, will potentially block chances of a takeover bid because the billionaire cannot own more than 14.9 percent of Twitter stock, either as an individual shareholder or as a member of a group, as long as he is on the company's board. South Dakota Governor Christy Nome has banned critical race theory in K through 12 schools, saying it has no place in our South Dakota public education The Republican governor announced on Monday that she plans to sign an executive order to ban the teaching of CRT in the state's K-12 schools. 
Noam on Twitter said critical race theory has no place in our South Dakota public education. That's why yesterday I announced I will be signing an executive order to ban the teaching in our K through 12 schools. In other news, President Biden wants more oil from Canada, but not a new pipeline to bring it. From the story featured in the Wall Street Journal, the president's um, administration officials are seeking ways to boost oil imports from Canada. People familiar with the situation say, but with one big caveat, they don't want to resurrect the Keystone XL pipeline that President Biden effectively killed on his first day in office. Longer term, Canadian officials and oil industry analysts say expanding the existing Keystone Pipeline network would offer a bigger, more efficient solution. But it's off the table. The XL expansion was to carry 830,000 barrels a day of Canadian crude from Alberta to Nebraska, where the pipeline would meet up with the existing Keystone Pipeline and then on to refineries on the U.S. Gulf Coast. Breitbart points out that the Biden administration has defended its decision on Keystone XL by claiming that it wouldn't uh, would not have been completed on time to address the present fuel crisis, thinking only about the current concern and not long term. It has not answered the criticism that canceling the pipeline sent a signal to oil and gas producers about the intention of the administration, uh, the no limit future exploration and development, which it then uh, duly did. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to continue to wind our way through some of the news head, uh, headlines, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the European Union proposed banning Russian coal, but not oil or gas. It's the easiest to be replaced, they say. The L.A. Times reports that the European Union executive branch Tuesday proposed a ban on coal imports from Russia in what would be the first EU sanctions to target the country's lucrative energy industry over its war in Ukraine. The Washington Post reports that this is the first EU move to block Russian energy imports since the invasion. The reason the commission proposal uh, proposed coal, not oil or gas, is likely because it's the easiest to be replaced. A senior fellow at the uh, Brussels-based think tank, Bruegel. The EU is already pushing to phase out coal to meet its climate change goals. The EU every day imports from Russia around 15 million euros, about 16.38 million of coal, around 400 million euros uh, of gas and 450 million euros of oil. A ban on coal is not going to hit Russia. The Washington Post, Post rather also points out Dmitro Kubela, a Ukrainian government official, says to avert new bukas, uh, impose the mother of all sanctions. Stop buying oil, gas and coal from Russia. Stop financing Putin's war machine. Russian economy and its war would stop in a matter of months. A few months of tightening your belts are worth thousands of saved lives. Well, of course, uh, eliminating the source is a major decision that they're not yet prepared to make or maybe capable of making Colorado Governor Jared Polis signed a bill to legalize abortions with no limits. This is similar to what uh, California is doing. But this in this case, the governor has actually signed the radical new pro-abortion law. It denies all rights and protections to babies prior to birth. A pro-abortion Democrat, he held a signing ceremony for the bill in Denver to affirm a woman's reproductive rights. Of course, not the woman in utero, 
only the one carrying the woman in utero, as the U.S. Supreme Court considers overturning Roe v. Wade. No matter what the Supreme Court does in the future, people in Colorado will have a right to choose, the governor said. The new law declares abortion to be a fundamental right under state law, denies all rights and legal protections to any fertilized egg, embryo or fetus up to birth. It also prohibits cities and municipalities from banning abortions through local ordinances, such as others have done through the Sanctuary City for the Unborn Movement. Ed Morrissey wakes in, weighs in rather, on hot air, and he points out the new law goes out uh, out of its way to pander to wokery, too. Its reference to pregnant individuals is both nonsensical and superfluous to a bill legalizing abortion until the final contractions. The word woman and female don't appear once in the text of the bill, and the word woman only appears in the citation of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, the case by which the Supreme Court might overturn Roe versus Wade. For a law that supposedly involves removing oppression from women, females have been oddly erased from the issue in Colorado, as have babies, for that matter. This law goes way beyond Roe or even Casey in its reaction to the potential reversal that may come in Dobbs. It strips rights from babies at all stages of pregnancy, even at viability, where Casey attempted to draw the line. It is, it's as radical as abortion legalization law could be on the extremes, not just in the U.S., but in the entire world, where only seven nations outstrip or match the U.S. in abortion legalization. And that's in the Casey context. Preparing for a surge at the border, Republicans are asking questions as the president changes the COVID rules. From that story, Republicans on House Oversight Committee, they're calling for answers from the Department of Homeland Security about its plan to deal with an expected spike in numbers at the southern border when the administration ends Title 42 in May. The administration has put out a fact sheet detailing how it's planning to deal with an increase in numbers at the border. While DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, he claimed that the agency has put in place a comprehensive whole of government strategy to manage any potential increase in the numbers of migrants encountered at the border. Any potential increase. The Washington Times reports near Yuma, Arizona, 90 percent of the Border Patrol's manpower is sometimes dedicated to transportation, hospital watch and other caretaking duties for illegal immigrants, leaving few agents for actually manning the borders there. Brandon Judd, national president of the NBPC, points out. And Congressman Debbie Lesko says on Twitter, Biden's plan for border is to keep it open by revoking Title 42. Our nation will see a surge in sex, human and drug trafficking and an unprecedented number of illegal immigrant encounters, not to mention uh, drug trafficking as well. President Obama visited the White House as President Biden <clears throat> is struggling Perhaps Obama can help Biden steady the ship from the story in the New York in the CBS News. Former President Barack Obama returned to the White House Tuesday for the first time since leaving office for an event marking the 12th anniversary of his signature health care law as the Biden administration takes steps aimed at lowering costs for families needing coverage. The New York Post reports Biden hosted Obama as the. He suffers badly in polls amid a series of crises, including inflation and illegal immigration hitting four decades high as the COVID-19 pandemic and associated restrictions drag on. The president's support in polls plummeted after the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan in August, and Democrats are bracing for a midterm election drubbing. A poll finds there is only one news outlet a majority of Americans actually trust, the Weather Channel. 
In fact, most Americans overall place trust in an organization that rarely covers domestic politics. The Weather Channel, 52% of Americans trust it. The Weather Channel is a trail by the UK news outlet BBC, 39%. The National Public Broadcaster, PBS, at 41%. And the Wall Street Journal at 37%. From the Daily Wire, no other outlet comes close in YouGov's survey of American news consumers, but one network polarizes Americans along partisan lines more than any other. That's CNN. In all, 66% of Democrats trust the 42-year-old cable news network, which transformed into an open, um, inveterate uh, foe of President Donald Trump and the Republican Party under the leadership of former CNN President Jeffrey Zucker. Only 11% of Republicans say they believe CNN's reporting, creating a gap, 55-point gap, in viewer trust between the parties. The student loan giveaway has been extended for the fourth time since taking office. The president plans to extend the moratorium on repayment of federal student loans. In March of 2020, the government paused federal loan repayment requirements due to the onset of the COVID pandemic. Now, over two years later, one of the few remaining pandemic-related relief actions by the federal government continues, demonstrating that this has much more to do with politics, free college, uh, and the political agenda than anything related to the pandemic. Federal student loan debt exceeds $1.6 trillion, more than Americans' debt on credit cards and auto loans. According to top Republicans on the House Education Committee, Virginia Fox from North Carolina, the administration's decision to extend the repayment pause isn't about the pandemic or targeted relief or struggling borrowers. It's about setting the stage for blanket loan forgiveness. It's a political winner. Meanwhile, taxpayers, many of whom never attended college themselves, remain on the hook for these federal student loans. They have to be paid whether or not those who actually enjoy the benefits will be the ones paying for them. They said just buy electric cars, but power outages caused by recent storms across the country highlight a glaring flaw in the anti-fossil fuel go green lobby solutions to global warming. The administration's most Marie Antoinette-like cabinet member, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, recently suggested that people fed up with the soaring gas prices should just buy electric cars. The problem is that America's um, aging electric grid is in no condition to handle the surge in demand needed to charge millions of new electric vehicles. Media outlets, particularly on the left, like the Associated Press, spin data on the growing frequency of power outages, asserting that this is all evidence of an increased frequency of severe storms due to climate change. But that's not the case. The frequency and severity of storms have not increased. What the data does reveal is a serious inconvenience for those believing in the green dream. The American power grid is simply incapable of handling the level of power necessary for the administration's electric vehicle pipe dream. That's to say nothing of the supply for that electricity. China's glorious, and that word is in quotes, COVID response is being mocked. According to authorities in Beijing, fewer than 5,000 Chinese have died from the uh, novel coronavirus. We wish it were true, but sadly it's not. That's a laughably dubious claim given the fact that COVID originated in Wuhan and that China's aggressive response included mobile crematoriums and locking people inside their homes for weeks on end. Nevertheless, much of the American media played along and often praised Beijing for its effective response to the pandemic. Perhaps China's authoritarian ways did prevent this, MSNBC's Chuck Todd once mused. 
Had China been a free and open society, would COVID have spread faster? The New York Times even asserted that China's response was motivated by serious concern for the public good. Today, China is once again experiencing a spike in COVID cases. This one related to the Omicron variant that was evidently hit its largest city, Shanghai, pretty hard and is forcibly separating and quarantining young children from their parents, holding them in government facilities where they suffer from a lack of proper care and supervision. Even many Chinese parents are asking, how could the government come up with such a plan? The answer lies in the fact that China's communist government doesn't believe in individual liberty and cares little for human rights or the truth. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the mass shooting in Sacramento last week or the weekend, the suspect was released from prison early, weeks before the tragedy. He has a violent past. The 2016 Clinton campaign lawyer and tech executive were in a joint venture to smear Donald Trump, according to investigator Durham in a new report. Joe Biden wrote a college recommendation letter to the son of Hunter Biden's Chinese business partner. Emails reveal some questions being raised about that. And President Biden released tax returns. Uh, Don't explain millions in income, raising questions. Where did the money come from? Millions of dollars from anonymous donors swamped election officials in the uh, dim, heavy counties in 2020, according to The Washington Times. And the CDC finds a depression epidemic among teenagers that the CDC, well, contributed to. The U.S. is looking to boost Canadian oil imports but doesn't want more pipelines. Arizona, Louisiana and Missouri are suing to halt President Biden from editing or rather ending the border order, stopping illegal immigrants. Fifteen states are threatening legal action against the Biden administration to protect the integrity of women's sports. And Loudoun County schools told teachers to keep gender transitions secret from parents. The Oklahoma legislature passed a bill to make performing an abortion illegal. And MIT has reinstated the SAT and ACT requirements. Well, in this week in history, 1830, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is organized by Joseph Smith in Fayetteville, Fayette, I should say, New York. 1896, the first modern Olympic Games formally opens in Athens, Greece. 1909, American explorers Robert E. Perry and Matthew Henson and four unnamed Inuits, uh, they become the first men to reach the North Pole. 1917, the United States enters World War I as the House joins the Senate in approving a declaration of war against Germany that is then signed by President Woodrow Wilson. 1954, Senator Joseph McCarthy, Republican from Wisconsin, responding to CBS newsman Edward Murrow's broadside against him on See It Now, saying it in remarks, a film for the program, that Murrow has in the past engaged in propaganda for communist causes. 1965, the United States launches the Intelsat-1, also known as the Early Bird communication satellite, into geosynchronous orbit. 1998, the Dow Jones Industrial Average closes above um, 9,000 points for the first time, ending the day at 9,033. 2019, woke culture warning. Former President Barack Obama says at an Obama Foundation event in Berlin, Germany, that he is worried that progressives are creating a circular firing squad as prospective Democratic presidential candidates race to the left on a number of hot topic issues ahead of the 2020 election. 
Well, some of the headlines uh, regarding what's happening in Ukraine. Putin's plan to build empire stretching from Vladivostok to Portugal. Another ex-oligarch says Vlad sees war with the West already underway. The Pentagon, Russia has fully withdrawn from Kiev and other areas. Execution of village mayor becomes symbol of brutality. A mayor and her child and husband. Zelensky blasts UN inaction. Failure to take Kiev defeat for the ages. And how Moscow silenced anti-war movement? We will kill you. So if you wonder what happened, that might be the answer. Well, President Biden announced sanctions targeting Russian President Vladimir Putin's daughters today as part of punishment related to the alleged war crimes in Ukraine. The sanctions will hit uh, the pair, uh, Putin's two adult daughters, as well as Russian Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin, uh, the wife and children of a foreign ministry, Sergei Lavrov, and members of Russia's Security Council, including former President and Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev. Well, the penalties cut off all of Putin's family members from the U.S. financial systems and freezes any assets they hold here in the U.S., The president said in a tweet, I made clear that Russia would pay a severe and immediate price for its atrocities in Bucha. He predicted the sanctions would wipe out 15 years of economic gains in Russia. Well, the sanctions will hit a much recovered Russian economy, which will test the country's seemingly newfound stability. The ruble has recovered some of its lost value with one dollar equal to around 84 Uh, ruble as of Wednesday. The exchange rate prior to the invasion was $1 equal to 83.53 ruble, with the uh, peak at around 139. Well, initial panic following the implementation of sanctions led to Russian citizens trying to pull their money from the bank, which uh, forced the banks to then borrow heavily from the Bank of Russia to meet demand. The Wall Street Journal argued that strict limits from Russia's central bank on currency exchange, withdrawals and hard currency transfers helped to rein in the wild fluctuations that initially spooked officials into shutting down trading on the Moscow exchange for almost a month. But some experts actually questioned the long-term strength of Russia's recovery. Says one from the Heritage Foundation, Andrew Kim, I think it's just part of the process. I don't think this is any meaningful recovery. It's an ongoing process. Uh, what's more important and more critical is the next step. Well, the U.K. also announced a heavy raft of new sanctions, including an asset freeze for two major banks, a ban on British investment in Russia and a pledge to end dependency on Russian energy resources by year end. Now, the European Union also indicated that it will announce new bans on investment and an energy embargo following evidence of atrocities in Ukraine that emerged following Russia's retreat from the town of Bucha. Ukraine is urging civilians to leave the eastern Kharkiv, Donetsk and Luhansk regions as it braces for a major new Russian offensive following Moscow's withdrawal from the north of the country. You need to evacuate now. While the uh, possibility still exists, that's a quote from Ukraine's deputy prime minister and minister for occupied territories in the Ukrainian TV program on Wednesday. Well, later, people will be under fire and under threat of death. We won't be able to help because it will be practically impossible to cease fire. Well, the sense of urgency by the Ukrainian government for civilians to flee comes days after reports emerged of executions, rapes and other human rights abuses of civilians by departing Russian forces as they retreated from the suburbs of Kiev. Russia has denied the reports and said they were staged by Ukrainian troops. But information is being gathered by the international community 
for potential war crimes trials in the future. Well, following heavy losses, Russia pulled its troops from the vicinity of Kiev and from the northern area, uh, the regions, um, last week in a strategy shift from the Kremlin, saying uh, they're going to allow it to focus on seizing the parts of Donetsk and Luhansk regions, collectively known as the Donbass, um, that remain under Ukrainian control. In the besieged city of Mariupol, the second largest in Donbass, the mayor said in a telegram that Russian troops that were in, uh, engaged in fierce urban combat in the uh, area with Ukrainian defenders have started using mobile crematoriums to dispose of the bodies of Ukrainian citizens. Uh, he uh, said that um, one uh, individual was put to death, or rather put the death toll at 5,000 citizens last week. Uh, said he now believes tens of thousands of Mariupol residents uh, could have been killed. There was no independent confirmation of his assessment. Heavy clashes continue in and near Donbass. Russia pressed on with its campaign of long-range missile strikes targeting fuel depots across Ukraine and an industrial facility in the eastern part of the country. Meanwhile, Poland's government has issued a guide that instructs the public how to prepare for a crisis like war and what to do during attacks with weapons ranging from conventional to chemical and nuclear. Posted on the Government Security Center's website this week, the Be Ready Guide for Times of Crisis and War gives detailed instructions in written form and in videos. European Union and NATO member Poland supported neighboring Ukraine's fight against the Russian military invasion. They're calling for European imports of Russian energy sources to stop. The tough stance has raised concerns among some ordinary Poles. Well, the guide describes public warning systems in the event of shelling, advises people to stock up on water, food, medication, batteries and flashlights in case of power cuts. It also includes advice on preparing for an evacuation, seeking protection during shelling or shooting and what to do during a chemical or nuclear attack. Now, again, um, Poland is a member of NATO to which we are obligated, as is the European Union, to defend. Well, the center says it is obliged to prepare the public for various difficult scenarios and to guide. And the guide is not necessarily due to the war in Ukraine. Previous guides address situations like floods, and harsh winter weather. So it does raise questions about concern of what will come next for Poland. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, according to a new survey, small congregations uh, are increasingly common in the U.S., according to a 20-year study from the Hartford uh, Institute for Religion Research. Small churches, 100 or fewer in weekly attendance, now make up 70% of U.S. congregations. But the growing number of small congregations present uh, their own challenges. Hearing from leaders in more than 15,000 houses of worship, the Faith Communities Today 2020 Survey, or FACT, found that um, most pressing issues in the the church um, that are faced today have a lot to do with size. Each size has its own gifts to give the community and also Christianity in general. The Institute's director, Scott Thuma, says the average crowd at church on a Sunday morning is a half what it was 20 years ago. In 2000, the median worship attendance a U.S. 
Congregations was 137. Now it's down to 65. As church attendance shrinks, small congregations make up a growing portion of the U.S. religious landscape. In the year 2000, 45% of churches had fewer than 100 in weekly attendance. That has climbed to 65. Churches with fewer than 100 in attendance often face existential challenges. They're more likely to have part-time unpaid or bivocational pastors and spend the largest percentage of their budget on their facilities. Among churches with less than or fewer than 50 attendees on a Sunday morning, 65% have declined by 5% of attendees or more in the past two decades. Yet small congregations are surprisingly faithful, the report says. The fact survey found small congregations have the highest percentage of members in church each Sunday. They give the highest amount per capita to the church and are more likely to volunteer. And since small churches often have part-time unpaid clergy or unpaid i should say they also spend less on staffing which frees up the budget for missions and local ministry diamondville united methodist a church resides in a town of about 200 the church's 20 um, church's 20 attendees make up 10 percent of the local population and the young pastor who uh, oversees the church, as well as a couple of others, admits the church is not thinking about growing. Sometimes the fact survey found common that to be common among the smaller churches. But the congregation wants to give as much as it can to the community while the church is still around. Well, the pastor, Pastor Fugate, says his parishioners are deeply committed to their churches, especially those who have attended for more than a half of a century. Well, in his two years of pastoral ministry, he's discovered that small rural churches are happy to let the pastor try new things. And it's been a blessing to have the freedom because we're at such a small scale, he says, with an average of 125 attending every week. First Baptist Church in Greenwood, Mississippi, isn't in immediate danger of closing, but it's not filling its sanctuary to capacity either. The fact survey found that medium sized churches like First Baptist are not as large as they used to be. Churches uh, with 101 to 250 attendees make up 21% of churches in the U.S. Colin Montgomery, who is the senior pastor at First Baptist, says the church, which dates back to the Reconstruction, has declined in recent decades, but has spent the past two years working to revitalize, which is difficult during a pandemic. The smaller attendance leaves the historic 600-seat sanctuary feeling empty, so the church opens its doors to local community whenever it can which isn't altogether uncommon these days. Nearly 6 in 10, or 58% of medium-sized congregations offer space to outside groups, and about half of these congregations don't charge rent for building use. While most of the outside groups are support groups or nonprofits, the fact survey found that churches host a variety of organizations, from 4-H clubs to yoga classes. Well, across the country in Roseville, California, Valley Springs Presbyterian Church hosts so many outside groups during the week that it uh, it functions as an informal community center. Since the pandemic, attendance at the church has hovered just below 250 on a Sunday with 40 or more households watching on YouTube. But the church is a hub of community activity, a preschool, a county youth orchestra, choir, community events, a quilters guild. All keep the church open during the week, and they also rent space to another congregation. Well, that pastor admits that the extra rental income does help, but the church doesn't seek tenants just for the money. The church wants to use its historic building to bless the community. And while the churches want uh, the church rather singular wants to continue growing, Montgomery said the current size helps the church to be a genuinely welcoming place. Being this size helps us to 
have relationships and to relate to others well. People feel like they know each other well and mobilize well when there are needs. Well, both Valley Spring and First Baptist Church have attendees who've come to church only once each month as activities like football games or trips to the lake pull them out of town. But those who attend regularly are deeply committed. One uh, senior pastor noted that giving has increased since the start of the pandemic, which as uh, we've seen in other places as well. Well, the fact study found that more than half of churches or 52 percent now say they're declining in attendance by at least five percent. Jeff Keedy believes the ministry happens uh, happening at small and medium churches is invaluable. Small churches dotting the landscape of our country, which has always been the case, are accomplishing a ton of ministry in the lives of families throughout the country. Uh, He said he's encouraged by the growing number of resources for small church pastors to ministries and organizations like the 95 Network, New Small Church, Grow a Healthy Church, and Small Church Pastor raise the profile of small churches as valid pastoral callings. But growing a small church can be a struggle when the mega churches have so many more members and outsized marketing budgets to spread the word. In 2020, 60% of churchgoers attended the largest 10% of uh, churches and big churches show the most attendance growth. And while the largest churches attract the most visitors, they don't necessarily keep them. The report observed that the turnover rate is very high in America's largest churches. And those who turn into members are less likely to engage meaningfully. Hartford's research, it shows the largest churches have the smallest percentage of people volunteering and the least amount given per capita. This is a generalization, of course. Well, the author said that while these large churches have the sheer volume to muster spectacular programs, their churches are often unavailable to community groups because they're used during the week for church programming. But mega church leaders, those serving churches with regular attendance of 2000 or more, have learned to um, to counter the overwhelming size of Sunday morning by getting members plugged into small groups. That sen- seems to be the trend. Well, in 2020, 90 percent of mega churches, again, congregations, 2000 or more, considered small groups as central to their strategy of Christian nu- nurture and spiritual formation compared to 50 uh, percent 20 years ago. So moving to that model in which. Uh, smaller groups are featured seems to be the norm. It's always been the truth, the case that the majority of churches across the country are the smaller congregations. They do the lion's share of the of the work, while larger congregations appeal to large swaths of the population as well. I suppose it's probably true that both are uh, absolutely essential. Both are necessary. Both fill um, the needs of congregants and outreach in their various communities, so not pointing the finger or condemning one or the other. Just pray that the church reflects the heart of God, that we are doing what pleases him, that we're not so insular that we miss uh, God's calling and purpose for the church, or that we're uh, so involved in outreach that we miss the gospel as the central message that the church is called to bring. So just grateful that the church exists, that we have a role to play in the culture, and that the gates of hell will never ever prevail against it. Well, tomorrow on the program, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Mark Scholes. He's going to be in the area for a stand-up girl fundraiser. We'll give you all the important details. Stand-up girl, you might recall, is a pro-life ministry that literally reaches all around the world. It's an online presence that is reaching into countries where um, individuals from the ministry, from the organization would simply not be permitted with a message that in some cases is not 
permitted as well. It really is a fascinating phenomenon, and God has really blessed this uh, this ministry. Anyway, Mark Schultz is going to be in town for a concert. We'll tell you more about that. Would uh, love for you to be a part of that event. So uh, keep that in mind, and he'll be joining us tomorrow on the program. If we can get the um, the head of the organization to join us as well, we'll we'll work on that. So that's coming up on Thursday. And then on Friday, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news in addition to headlines and share this week's Christian Outlook. Want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.